Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Monday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We have a packed Monday show for you. Weldon Rodenberg here in his normal Sunday evening recording time slot, at least, to discuss all angles of Ole Miss's loss to Auburn with some soccer corner at the end. No need to delay. We're going to get right into it. Thought it was a good conversation on fourth downs, analytics, beat up receiving core, kind of where Ole Miss goes from here as they have a sort of strange week kind of leading up into a crucial month in November. Yes, Liberty game first week in November, but how do you handle that? We got into all that and uh, ways this team could kind of get healthy before they hit this stretch of games with, of course, AM, Vanderbilt, and State. So, anyway, a lot to talk about, a lot to get to. But before we do, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Need to check these guys out. Haven't done the math on the weekend yet, but they were. I got a couple of tweets about some free plays, Skybox delivering for the people as always. You need to get their paid picks, and they're going to have a package to fit your price range. Skyboxsportspicks.com got sports centric packages you can try it for a week you can try it for a month i'd recommend going year-long all sports pass gives you access to everything it'll pay for itself and then some as skybox consistently leads you to profit but if you're looking for something a little cheaper that fits your uh fit your financial plan a little bit better they're going to have some sort of package for your preferred sport that's going to fit what you had in mind to pay and they're going to make you money. So the payment really is just an investment. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Don't want to be texting the man around this time. Or you, you don't want him having texting you. You want to be texting him, asking where your supplemental income for the week has come, rather than him trying to even up with you. Skybox will help you do that more consistently than your own dumb brain. I can promise you that part. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, go see Greg Rippy Wright special right now. 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks, $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your weekend for 25 bucks. Check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger lane train special, Keith Carter special bacon wrap fillets, all kinds of fresh seafood sausages. Absolutely the best place in the world to get meat. Go see Greg at LB's. He wants to make your grilling experience better. He loves grilling. He's got all kinds of stuff cooking up over there. You need to go check them out. So go see him at LB's. Tell him I sent you Rippy Wright's promo special. Sign up, rippywrights.substack.com. Free newsletter for me, three to five times a week, plus that $25 deal with the 16-ounce prime strip and the pack of sausage. Hard to beat that, so go check them out. Podcast also brought to you by Manscaped, as is all MPW digital podcasts are now. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Yes, you heard that right, 4.0. Join the over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and use the MPW digital, or excuse me, MPW, promo code MPW, for 20% off. It's time to make trimming time your favorite time in the bathroom the Lawnmower 4.0 allows you to customize your trim through additional guard leg sizes 1 through 4, 4000K LED light, portable charger. Need to check these guys out. Manscaped.com. They want to make your me time the best time in the bathroom. Heard the 70s were a pretty wild time, but that is over. 
Manscaped is now making sure things don't get too out of control down there. Check them out, manscaped.com. Get 20% off any purchase. I got the Manscaped boxers the other week uh, and the 4.0 and a pretty sick shirt. So I'm on Team Manscaped now. You should be too. Check them out. Here's Weldon. On the other end of the line is he is every Sunday is old, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg in his normal Sunday slot here to recap all angles of Ole Miss's 31 to 20 loss to Auburn on the Plains. A really tough place for Ole Miss to play over the years, and it kind of bore itself true again. Rebels were shorthanded. I didn't think they played very well in general, and really it was kind of amazing the amount of opportunities they actually had to stay in this game um and weren't able to capitalize on any of them uh and it was just kind of i don't know it was one of those deals felt like it was what it was how are you i'm doing well i just got back to houston after another weekend away at a wedding in memphis uh got to watch the saints play and we won the game but may have lost our quarterback for this season so a little bit of uh both emotions there with that but Happy to be back. Yeah, that looked like a pretty tough deal for Jameis there. He gets kind of pulled down on what was, I guess, kind of sort of a horse collar, kind of started trying to walk on it and looked. that looked pretty bad. I didn't think Simeon was terrible, though, and talk about the defense really stepping up too. No, yeah, I mean, this is – I don't know if they're the best defense in the league, but they're, they're pretty damn good. And Peyton is just amazing. Just doesn't matter what the quarterback is. But I, I we could be in some serious trouble because I don't trust him to be able to do – with Simeon, what he was able to do with Jameis or Teddy Bridgewater. He's just not that kind of player. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I wonder – I was curious why they didn't go Taysom – or not curious why they didn't go Taysom Hill. Was that ever – did you think that was ever an option or do you think they go straight to Simeon? Have they kind of finally punted on that entire project? Uh, Taysom's hurt. He's out. He's he's still got a concussion. So they didn't really have a choice uh, with this game. And I actually just looked down at my phone. It looks like it's an ACL tear. So, Oh, for Jameis? Yeah. Ah, that's pretty, that's pretty brutal. Um, yeah, that's what I was curious. I was like, I didn't see any of Taysom Hill, but obviously that I was wasn't totally locked in that game, but that sort of makes sense. The game I was locked into last night was an ugly one for Ole Miss. They go down 14 to three. And speaking of an injury, Corral injures his left ankle, which I guess was the other one that he messed up. So the right one he messed up at Tennessee, he messed up that one as Ole Miss is down 14 to three, and it looks Pretty bleak at that point, although Altmaier looked okay-ish on the first couple, like, kind of drive-ish, I guess. I don't know. He was, what, five, six plays in before Ant Corral come take back over. Just, I guess, before we get too far into it, just kind of general impressions of this game. I thought the defense played really poorly in the first half, played pretty well in the second half, but it just wasn't really enough to overcome, um, you know, all of the all of the injuries around the offensive line. And, you know, you lose drum, not lose drumming, but he's hurt too. And it just seemed like they were just too shorthanded to really move the football with any consistency because, I mean, my God, that offense had scored, you know, 30 plus a game pretty much every game outside of Alabama. And then they scored three points in the second half. Yeah, I think all the injuries finally caught up to this team. And we talked about it before the game, but this was always one where we were, especially just the gauntlet of the schedule they've gone through so far where things could really unravel pretty quickly for this team. And once Corral got injured and I was re-watching it, I didn't realize it was only the second offensive drive of the game, I think, just because Auburn had controlled the clock so much. And then that really messes up your rhythm just as a team, and as a play caller. And uh, the defense was so bad in the first half. Really haven't seen them play that bad since like last year, truly. Even Ar- I mean, or Arkansas, I guess you could say. 
Um, but they really adjusted well in the second half. They made Bo Nix actually like have to make a throw instead of just giving him a bunch of dink and dunks. Um, but the offense just could not capitalize in the red zone. And there were so many opportunities too. And it just, they just didn't make enough plays and the, uh, all the injuries kind of hurt the flow of the game. And they just kind of couldn't get in a rhythm. And this is such a rhythm-based offensive scheme that that just kind of killed them. Um, then I'm not going to say I'm overly surprised. I think we all saw something like this possibly happening. I think it's just more disappointing the way it happened. Just being able to be in the game for so long and not be able to capitalize is kind of like, you know, what could have been kind of deal for this game and semi this season. But um, it's just unfortunate. But it's the two losses this year on on the road at Alabama and at Auburn. And if you ask somebody in the beginning of the season whether you take that at six and two, I think you'd be happy. I think there's just the reality kind of sets in of what it could have been, which is why it's so painful, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. This was, I guess like if you're watching as an Ole Miss fan, this was an incredibly frustrating game because it just felt like Ole Miss was continuing to hang on by a thread. And I don't know, there were three or four points in that game where it was like I kind of looked up and was like, I can't believe they still have a chance in it, but they very much did. You know, even all the way down to the chance Campbell strip when the game was pretty much over had that guy gotten that first down. And it's just – I guess it was kind of – I mean, you rely so much on this offense, and then for them not to be able to do anything was one of the more frustrating games that Ole Miss has played this year, probably the most frustrating because Alabama was just kind of an ass-kicking from the right. start. You mentioned the red zone was very, very true. I mean, Ole Miss has eight red zone possessions, and they only end up with two touchdowns. That's not even going to cut it even if you have a good defense, particularly not, not going to cut it when the defense is struggling so badly in the first half. Braylon Sanders dresses out but is not able to give it a go. And Drummond injures his – something on his leg. I, I don't want to, like, diagnose the guy, but it looked like a hamstring or something uh, early yeah. in the second quarter. How much of, like, the lack of personnel – I know this is, sounds like a simplistic question, but the lack of personnel contributed to the red zone struggles because I feel like that's kind of when everything – I don't know. It feels like between the 20, sometimes you can get away with – you know, just kind of plugging guys in, I guess, and you can scheme yards up no matter really who's out there, right? I mean, the, I guess the example would that be Jacor Pearson ends up with 130-something yards in this game. But how much of a difference and how amplified do you think that is in the red zone, not having Mingo, not having Sanders, and not having a healthy drum in for really most of the night? He played a quarter healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's it definitely hurts because it's a – you know, players make plays, you know, not it's players, not the plays you're calling, and – when you don't have those guys that can win one-on-one -on -one matchups or that are effective blocking on the outside or really don't know the full length of the offensive play calling, it just kind of minimizes what you can do. And it really showed in the red zone when the, the field shrinks. They're not they're, – they actually really didn't even run the ball that poorly, but they were not able to really run the ball well on short distances. They just were not getting a lot of push and – kind of have a lack of playmakers out there, eventually it kind of comes to bite you in the ass. And it definitely did multiple times. It felt like unless the ball was going to Casey Kelly, it was just kind of a hodgepodge of people out there, which is just kind of what you weren't expecting coming into this season. Um, and it's a little unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, we were at the place I was watching it at. I was with a couple guys that graduated from Ole Miss and some that weren't, 
didn't graduate from West and didn't know much about the team, but even the guys that followed the football team pretty closely, he's like playing a game of like, can you name all four guys out there at receiver and tight end right now? And it got pretty difficult right between Dennis and Jaden and then whoever they had lined up at tight end out there. And then of course, Jacor Pearson. I mean, this is just not not really what Ole Miss intended to have at receiver. It was interesting. The broadcast made a couple, a note at least once, I think a second time about Kiffin saying that he thought going into the year, as a whole, so not three individual receivers, he might have the best trio of receivers in the SEC or one of the best. And I thought that was interesting for that he said that because it sounds like despite the lack of depth going into the year, he had a decent bit of confidence in the top three guys. But I guess as we kind of knew, when you didn't have when you don't have those three guys, uh the guys after them, whether it's I don't know, either of the Jacksons or Jacor Pearson, which doesn't feel fair for this year, but for a large part of the year, just haven't really developed them being so top heavy. It just kind of is what it is. Like I, then you have a banged up corral. It makes it really difficult to move the football. How, I guess this is probably a conversation mostly for after the year, but what do you do at receiver? I mean, they're going to have to get healthy at some point. I wouldn't think Drummond is lost for the year. I don't anticipate Mingo coming back, but that's just a guess. I don't really know what his status is. Kiffin doesn't really do the whole injury thing, right? So right. I, I, your guess is as good as mine. And I think Sanders comes back at some point in the year. But just for the la- sake of the argument, like, what do you think they tur- – where do you turn next at receiver? It's a great question. Um, I think there's really multiple ways you could go about it. Um, you can move Miles back to – receiver full-time and um, just keep him there and keep him ingrained in the offense. And then you know, he played a little bit last night out there. Um, you could see just with Chase Rogers being out, you can't really go a lot of two tight end sets and kind of just take away a receiver off the field. So that's what's killing you probably more than people realize just only having Casey out there. Um, it, it's going to be difficult because your offensive line is so beat up, so you can't really just rely on running the ball down people's throats, especially when Corral's got two bum ankles. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, somebody's going to have to step up, but we've been saying it for three weeks, and with the exception of Pearson, no one really has. Dannis has not been able to submit himself. Jaden Jackson's basically just a walking, you know, lame duck out there. He has done nothing. Um, J.J. Henry got some snaps. Plumlee, that's unfair to ask a guy like him to be ready. Right. Type of yeah, moment, I mean, right. What do you expect? I mean, he's a he's a true freshman, and he wasn't even expected to play this year. Um, Plumlee's basically been nullified to a few jet sweeps, and I'm not totally surprised by his lack of threat as a receiver, but he could get more into the game plan. The lack of Ely was a little surprising, but I think – I don't even know if I want to say that ship has sailed because I don't think that's fair yet, but there's clearly a, a lack of confidence in his play. Um, so they're going to have to mix and match and do some different things and out scheme people, which is something they're capable of doing. It's just going to be really difficult. And honestly, I, I don't know what to feel about how Matt's going to be for the rest of the year. Yeah, no kidding. Just not going to be overly shocked if come Monday we hear that this thing is worse than it was. Well, he got some ligament damage or something. I mean, I think adrenaline and a nice, healthy dose of Toradol really made him play that rest of that game. Um, I, I'm very concerned about what we could hear come Monday or Tuesday. And, of course, Kiffin's 
going to do his BS about not telling injuries, which is fine. That's what they do. Um, but I think when it's your quarterback, I think you've got to have at least a semblance of um, understanding with what's going on or giving an understanding of where that's at. I mean, I don't know. It, it's I'm very concerned about Corral and really just the entire offense as just health wise. It's it's getting pretty uh pretty gnarly. Yeah, I mean, look, they th- this is a storyline, particularly on defense, but Kiffin pointed out going into the year on offense, like they're they're not where they want to be from a depth standpoint. I don't think really anywhere other than running back. I guess you can make an argument for offensive line, but I, I don't know. I mean, it didn't feel like they were overly deep on the offensive line, even though you can kind of get away from having seven, eight guys in the rotation for the most part anyway provided you stay healthy, but they're not even like, they don't have that anymore. Right. With the loss of Ben Brown. And I still don't think Caleb Warren's a hundred percent because there were some times where Orlando Umana did the whole thing where he slides over to guard again. So yep. you're reaching the point where you're just decimated by injuries and there's only, you know, so much you can overcome even with a Heisman trophy favorite at quarterback. And I guess kind of the last note on receivers, this is clearly something they're going to address with an impact guy or two, probably multiple in the portal for someone that worked, and I know you, I don't know how much you've dealt with, you know, potential transfers film and that process of identifying talent transfer wise, but how early are the wheels set in motion in the season when you realize you kind of have a need at receiver, particularly with Mingo and Sanders out? Like how early do you think the process started of trying to identify someone that could potentially help next year? And what does that look like throughout the rest of the season? Because I feel like people kind of think of it as an off season deal, but clearly you know, they kind of try to put their ducks in a row, for the lack of a better phrase, way, well before then. What's that process like? Yeah, it's – I – we did a lot of it um, preseason last year whenever we didn't think that the, you know, Pac-12, Big Ten or whatever were going to play football. So we're going through and looking at everyone's roster. And we're like, who the hell can play football and who <laughs> who might want to come here? Is there any connection, the Mississippi kids? My guess is that process has started – from day one and i'm sure it was situations like lsu with situations like this afternoon i don't know if you saw gary patterson step down i can already tell oh, you no i missed that wow yeah gary patterson they uh mutually parted ways probably for the best for that program um is that a coach out the season thing not that it really matters yeah, uh i think he's helping with the transition but i think they said jerry kill the guy from minnesota who's on staff there is going to be taking over for the rest of the year okay um, I saw that Didn't game. that guy just step down at one point for health issues? Is that he yes. the, he's, the, he's the guy that has seizures, right? Yes, that's correct. That, anyway, that's, not the point. Not the point. But whenever you have like roster issues like that or coaching changes, you're automatically looking at that roster and seeing who they got. You're not reaching out. I mean, maybe through back channels, of course, at some point, you know, there's obviously this Zach Evans deal. Um, we were at once, you know, getting him and then it just kind of didn't happen. Um, so that, that it happens quickly and it happens right when they see the opportunity, you know, reveal itself, whether that's a coaching change or just kind of a issues or just really anything. And, um, that's why you always see these guys when they're getting the portal, it's like, they already know where they're going. You know, Drew Quez Jones is going to Kentucky the second he was in the portal. It was already done. You know, it happens all the time. And we were dealing with it so much earlier in the season last year when we're going for guys and they get in the portal and we're, you know, now that they're in the portal, you can reach out to them. And it's all like, yeah, he's already going here. I'm like, oh, okay. So you got to get ahead of it. 
you got to figure out your plan. And I'm sure they are looking at these rosters of coaching changes teams and being like, okay, what can we get? Where can we get them? And can we get them at wide receiver, quarterback, offensive line, and defensive line? And they're going to go for every position. I mean, I think it's going to be a point where you might see Kiffin and them sign like 16 high schoolers and then save nine, 10 spots for transfers. I don't think they sign 20 high school kids. I think it'll be like 15, 16, maybe even less. They're just not going to take a guy they don't think can be a contributor, at least early on in their career, and then just save the rest of the class for transfers. So what do you think that's a product of? of is it simply, I mean, is the, the receiver position kind of a microcosm of that where guys haven't developed and so you have to go find immediate impact guys across the board just because you don't necessarily trust the ones you have? Like, what's that a product of and how common is that? Um, well, the new transfer portal, it's its incredibly common. I mean, you saw Alabama. Kind of turning college hoopsy, right? Where, it's what that's become? Incredibly college hoopsy. See, I mean, you've got a guy that's a real contributor at a smaller school. He wants to go play at a, a chance, win a national championship, or play in the SEC. You see it all the time. I mean, Georgia got the kid that was an All-American from West Virginia. Bama goes and gets an Ohio State receiver, even though they've got, um, you know, as many receivers as you could want. Um, it It is part – they may not trust the guys they've got out there, which is pretty clear with the way this season's gone. I mean, they just have been throwing it all together – but it's also just a product of what college football is now is you can recruit high school kids, but if you want to really boost your team and you know all these known products are out there because you've seen the college film, you just kind of get a better idea of what that guy can bring to your team, whether it's you know, high school kids, you can watch the film and you can know as much about them as you want, but you really don't know what they're going to be like at the college level, at least for – a majority of them some you know are guarantees but um i think it's just a way that you have to manage rosters these days yeah i think the roster building thing is fascinating and we could do i could do an hour and a half two hours on that hell we might do it one day as towards we get to the end of the season but i kind of got us off track there reeling it back into the auburn game Ole miss goes down 14 to 3 early in this game and you're thinking even before the corral injury with the way Auburn, the second drive was pretty telling to me because like, like I was curious after the first drive, what Auburn would look like off script because LSU was pretty good on script last week, right? They had a couple clearly pre-designed, not pre-designed, but a couple run concepts that they knew would work and they hit Ole Miss with it early, go right down the field and score a touchdown. But when Auburn marches right down the field on the second drive, I was thinking, and Ole Miss was, wasn't able to capitalize, um, you know, and put the ball in the end zone on that first drive. I was like, oh, they might be in trouble here because it wasn't just a, hey, they're getting gashed by the run. They, they you know, they might need to try to adjust something here. They were, there were receivers wide open. Like it seemed yeah. like that, particularly from the start of the game, um, credit to Mike Bobo and whatever role Brian Harson plays in it. They, uh, they, they kind of pulled Ole Miss's pants down a little bit on those first few drives in terms of a game plan. What did you kind of see that old, like when Ole Miss went down 14 to three? And at that point, even pre corral injury, did you have the same, like, I guess, thinking of, oh boy, this could get bad? Cause it, it, it looked pretty easy. I mean, Auburn didn't end up being great on third down on the night, but that was mostly because they didn't have a lot of third downs. Like that, right. I, I tried, to, I forgot to go back and count, but those first two drives, I think they only faced like one or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, I rewatched the game this morning and the first half, they were just completely out scheming the defense. You know, it looked like kind of one of those Arkansas games of pass where 
the tight ends are running these wheel routes. They're wide open, and the running backs are just ripping through the holes. I thought Ole Miss did a terrible job of just gap integrity of just they're just getting manhandled and pushed to the side, and Tank Bigsby wasn't getting touched until Chance Campbell and Robinson got him like four yards down the field, and they ended up adjusting pretty well. I think Auburn got pretty conservative in the second half, yeah. realizing the, you know the injuries on Ole Miss's side, and they were just really not doing a whole lot in the second half. Um, Ole Miss looked like they played a little bit more man and kind of challenged Bo Nix to actually make a throw or two that were difficult. But the first half, I mean, they just, I mean, every single drive, and yeah, I'm sure we'll get to penalties, and but it just it, that was just one small part of it. They were just getting gashed up front, and when you're on schedule like that, and you're in a rhythm calling plays, I mean, it can be tough. And uh, the bend don't break mindset, you know, it came to fruition the second half, but it felt like he was about to get out of hand um, there for a little bit in the first. Yeah, you're exactly right about that, and you know. It's interesting watching this defense because I do think they got Auburn did get conservative in the second half. I think you're dead on with that. And that was a hell of a I don't want to call it a gamble, but it's a it's a bit of a risk. Like, you know, with number two at quarterback, healthy, unhealthy to kind of get that conservative and not keep your foot on the gas. It's certainly a calculated risk, but it turned out to be the correct one. I that. That seems to me they didn't totally, even though Bo Nix had been playing well, they maybe it's one of those deals where like we don't totally trust this guy yet and we're not going to let him, you know, get, put the other team back in the game with the short field. But, I mean, hell, it, 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 it happened in some degree, right? Auburn, like, botches the punt and Ole Miss didn't able to do it, able to do anything with that. But I think you're right. I think they did get conservative. But the, the other point I was going to make, too, particularly on the first two drives, and it was really the case throughout most of the night, Ole Miss wasn't sitting back in coverage every time when they sent guys, they did send guys, but they also weren't getting home, which is a problem. I mean, even for a good defense, when you send extra guys and you're not getting to the quarterback, it's, it's tough. Like you're putting your secondary in a really tough spot. And uh, Atlanta Falcons defensive coordinator, Dean Pease actually had a decent soundbite on this this week. I'm not even going to ask if you saw it because it just randomly popped up on my Twitter timeline. Like this is not some yeah, viral I, deal. I did not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was not some viral deal, but he was talking to a reporter about like the reporter was kind of asking a pointed question. Sometimes we can get a little too big for our britches and really try to be like, why didn't you do more of this type of thing? And that pisses coaches off clearly, but the guy was talking about blitzing and he was asking why Atlanta sat back in zone or whatever their previous game was versus blitzing. And Pease was like, Everyone wants to talk about blitzing and like it, like it's it's less about blitzing and it's more so about getting there. He's like basically a blitz is worthless if you don't get there and you're completely sunk. There's really not a lot of coverages you can scheme up when you blitz to be good on both ends. Like you either get there or you're in big trouble. And I felt like there was a lot of that, particularly in the first half with Ole Miss, where they sent five, six guys at times it looked like and just didn't get close. And that's that's a really tough place to put your uh, secondary in. It is, and it's kind of just a product of, you know, you, you're playing man-on-man and you're not letting the guy beat you deep, so you're giving up a lot of cushion when you're blitzing. And you saw it, you know, we've sent four or five, not get there at all, and Bo Nix can just set his feet, throw an easy 10-yard, you know, comeback route where there's, you know, five yards of separation. And it's you think the DBs are playing crappy, but reality, it's just they're not getting home on these blitzes. And that can kill a defense, especially if you do it multiple times because, you know, it's exhausting trying to rush the passer. It's not an easy thing to do. And you got your linebackers and your three linemen doing it. And they 
they really never got to him very often. They had two really good opportunities. Sam Williams whiffed on a sack, which, and then Bo runs to basically make it a fourth and in inches. And then another time they kind of got him when he was running around like a crazy man and Campbell, Campbell got him out of bounds. Besides that, just really never pressured him at all and never made him feel uncomfortable. And he just kind of, at least in the first half and even a little bit in the second half too, just kind of started picking him apart which is a credit to him, you make the easy throws, you know, make him pay for it. Those There were two – Williams had two whiffs on sacks. One yeah. of them I think he ended up getting away with because I think that's the one where Campbell forced Knicks out of bounds anyway and, like, the play was totally screwed. Yeah. But the first one, you're right. On the, that's the, I can't remember – was that the first or the second drive of the game? It doesn't really matter. I can't remember which one it was. First drive, It's the first drive of the game. It's the one where everyone was complaining. Uh, he, there was the block in the back, and Knicks kind of scrambled around and yeah. got to almost got the, third, the first down. But, you know, if Sam just throttles down and sacks him, he's got him dead to rights, then you don't have to worry about the block in the back and the, that drives over and you get the ball. And Yeah, those are hugely consequential plays. I mean, that the, right. the entire game could go differently. Yeah, no, and I mean, just stopping a team on script and getting them off rhythm and going up on the road, it's just, it was huge. And that play was so critical because then they just kind of continued their march and scored pretty easily after that. Um, but yeah, you just got to get home. And Sam had a great game. He, he didn't play poorly, but he had he made the play on the second sack. But that first one, I mean, he just died, he just goes right by the right tackle, and then just could not make the play. And it was killer. Yeah, it was. And I thought you were right too. Ever since you pointed out Williams needing to be more consistent as far as it comes to run defense, he seemed to be in the mix. Uh, against the run and it, the running game Auburn like the, in terms of run defense it was kind of a weird game because they got gashed a little bit early on and maybe this is a product of them getting a little conservative but I thought Ole Miss offered a decent amount of resistance to Auburn's running game I want to make sure I have the final stats correct so I don't mess this up Auburn runs for 207 on 46 carries I mean that's clearly not great, but it's, you know, not completely horrendous. I thought they offered resistance there. I just thought the pass rush aspect of it and not getting home really killed them because, you I mean, now Bo Nix goes 22 at 30 for 276 yards. And, you know, of those two 22 completions, not a lot of them were dimes and fitting the balls in tight windows. Like, to me, it was it was pretty pretty easy for him. I mean, he looked good, but I, th I didn't think Ole Miss did a good job of making Bo Nix uncomfortable, which – I thought would be kind of like something they would really – maybe they did try, but I thought that would be kind of a central aspect of this game because despite him having a great game at Auburn two weeks ago – excuse me, at Arkansas, like that seems to be kind of the, the, the way to stop Auburn, I guess, is put it in that kid's hands and make him make difficult plays to win the game. And it didn't seem like they really did that throughout the night. No, not at all. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's just so critical. Cool, especially when you're doing this, you just got to get home. You know, they're, they're playing this bend, don't break. But I credit to Durkin for at least trying to be aggressive and understanding the situation. Um, but even, even that being said, you can't really complain about the defense too much because they only scored three points in the right. second half. And if you had said that, you'd assume Ole Miss probably would have won the game. And they came back and really made stops when they had to. The DBs played much better. They were much better against the run. Run fits were much better. Um, hard to get too frustrated there. It, this this team has been so offensively, you know, steered towards the offensive direction, I guess, for a lack of better phrasing. Um, 
that it's just kind of that's why it's so disappointing. It felt like Arkansas last year. You know, you didn't have like the yep. six or seven interceptions or anything like that, but the defense played a a really solid game. And I would consider this a solid game, you know, despite the first half and the offense just could not put it together. And I think that's why the loss is so disappointing because it's kind of the opposite of what you've expected, at least these past two years with Kiffin and this team and Corral. Um, just the game unfolding that way is just not what you're used to. And that's kind of why I think it makes it a little bit more disappointing. No, I think you're you're on to something there with the reference in terms of the game feel against Arkansas because you're right, it wasn't the six interceptions, but you know, it was the third downs and you know, they all seem or fourth downs, excuse me, and they all seemed to come in plus territory. Like it was those kind of feel like turnovers, particularly the one on the fourth and less than a yard to Casey Kelly after you get a turnover. That almost feels like a turnover and a half, and then the crowd has the bad pick. I think it was certainly similar to that, but you're right. The defense, you can't really can't really fault them too much. Like you mentioned, they give up three points in the second half with the turnover. And I thought a crucial, I thought an interesting point in this game, I guess we'll get to the corral injury. So they're down 14 to three. They're, you know, kind of scuffling to start that drive. And then corral goes down with the ankle thing. I don't know what you were thinking at that point, but the initial steps that he took, like in terms of like trying to see if he was okay and put weight on it, like it seemed like he was really trying to be like, okay, nah, I just twist it up. I'll be fine. And then it clearly got to the point where he was like, no, this actually really hurts. I thought at that point, I don't like to play injury doctor. I don't know about you. I thought it was pretty significant. I think Kiffin did too. I think he mentioned after the game, yeah. like he was like, I thought it was something pretty bad, like a tear, ligament damage, something. Like sounded like Kiffin didn't expect to have them back, which is what were your thoughts in that moment? I did not expect to have Matt Crowell back in that game. I was shocked by that. <laughs> well, my initial thoughts were, I was at the wedding reception that uh, it was time to go get a drink <laughs> maybe <laughs> and maybe multiple because this was going to be really sad. Um, it, I, that's why I say I'm concerned about this week um, because I really do think he did some, some real damage to that ankle to a point that it, it might be something he might be missing this next game and like actually missing it. Um, I, I didn't know what to expect. And, I think we both called it in the beginning of the season. I was – Altmeyer was going in that game. There was no Plumley that, that that ship has sailed. It is over there. Um, and I was like, well, this game is pretty much over. And that's not, not – not being rude to Luke. I think Luke can develop and to be a, a very good player. And I think he actually really held his own and did about as best as he could considering the circumstances. But – they weren't going to win that game with him back there. Um, at least not, not that day, not that day. Um, so it was a little concerning. And I think that concern is still kind of there with me in terms of what this offense looks like in the future. No, I agree. Like when a backup quarterback comes in like that, particularly a kid that's a freshman and young to me, and I wrote down a couple of thoughts earlier about this to me. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the same thing in professional football, in my opinion, unless you're one of the two teams that has like a legit, you know, there's two teams every year in the NFL, two, three, that have like a real backup to where it's like, okay, they could actually be fine-ish. Um, like Trevor Simeon. <laughs> yeah, there we go, Trevor Simeon. Maybe he is the best backup in the league. But uh, yeah, like, so I guess my point, what I'm trying to get at is you see it at all levels of football. You're just trying to have your backup not completely swallowed up by the moment. Can he stay there, stay composed, and do – enough with the limited menu of plays kind of cater to his strengths a little bit and kind of really simplify the offense. And can he make, you know, enough plays to give you a chance to move the football at times? 
And I thought Altmaier did that. But to your point, this is all a moot discussion because we knew from the moment Ole Miss kicked off in February, or excuse me, I was about to say February, it's not baseball season, kicked off in August or September, Labor Day night, whatever the case may be. If number two went down and missed any sort of significant time, this ship was, he was, the ship was going down with it. Oh, this offense and the way this team is constructed is to have number two play like a superhero, right? Like they're, they're not, they don't have the infrastructure around the quarterback position to survive with the backup quarterback. And to your point, I thought Altmaier looked fine. Um, there wasn't exactly a ton of mustard on a couple of those balls, particularly the one to Plumley. but Hey, you know, they completed them and he looked okay. They were moving the football down the field, but you're right when they, they were never winning that game with Altmaier. And then Corral comes back in as Altmaier's uh, moving the football down the field. And if you want to give value to what Altmaier did, Ole Miss punts, the defense gets a stop to their credit. So you're killing real time. I'm not even talking about game time here. For Corral to go back in the locker room and get the MRI and at least just get a gauge of where that's at. But if Ole Miss goes three and out there on the second drive, so the first full drive that Altmaier's in and punts, the way the first half went, Odds are Auburn's going to go down and score a touchdown, right? I think Auburn had five first-half possessions, and four of them were touchdowns with the one stop sprinkled in in between, unless I'm missing something. If they go three and out there, and the next time Corral gets the ball back and they're down 21-3, to I'm not sure it ever really becomes much of a game. Like, that that was a huge moment. And so for Almar to move the football and buy a little bit of time for Corral to come back in the game, I thought was really important. Because they come – they Corral comes back in, they call the timeout in second and 17 – they end up scoring on that drive. So all of a sudden it's 14 to 10. You have your quarterback in and all that turns out to be a net zero when it really could have been an absolute disaster. I thought that was kind of the importance of what Altmaier did. He kept them afloat and killed time. Absolutely. I mean, he did as, like I just said, as well as he could have under the circumstances, he moved the ball, made the right decisions, uh, didn't force anything, let the game kind of come to him and do what he needed to do. And, it saved, you know, four or five minutes of time with the defense getting a stop to get Corral to come back, which was a, a, a crazy moment. It was, you know, and we're all at this reception and everyone starts yelling and screaming. I'm like over at the bar. I go back and this crowd coming out of the tunnel you know, like a <laughs> WWE match. Um, uh, and it was it was crazy. I thought it was going to be like his Heisman moment and all that, you know, narrative bullshit. But um all Luke did great and you can only ask for so much. And uh, this offense just had really had no help around them the entire game. And it was just unfortunate, but you can't say enough about what he did and what it meant for the team at that time, still trying to win the football game. This conversation is going to annoy some people, but I think it's worth having because one of the things we talked about when trying to figure out this backup quarterback thing is, was I believe if I remember correctly, our hypothesis was, you know, early in the year of Corral twist an ankle against Louisville, I think is the way we phrased it. You probably see Plumley, whereas if it happens in late October, you probably see Altmaier. I'm not sure how true our hypothesis was, but Plumley gave a tidbit around that time in media that we covered in the moment. If you'll remember this, he talked about him going back and forth to the quarterback room and him actually spending a lot more time in the quarterback room than the coaching staff was letting on. And so for that reason, I think it was, this is why it's worth the conversation. Why, in your opinion, did they not try to kill time by doing the Plumley package? Because in my mind, that seems pretty run heavy. You're already depleted at receiver. I'm not arguing that they should have done it. I think they did the right thing. 
but from someone that would know better than I would and be able to articulate it, why didn't they do that? My guess is at this point in time, Luke's had, you know, fall, fall camp and every practice of every day throughout this season to kind of solidify himself as the backup quarterback. He probably knows this offense, maybe not as well as Matt, but as well as any other quarterback, clearly. And it really just comes down to Plumlee can't run this offense. And they probably have ditched that Plumlee package. Clearly, they haven't really used him in the backfield as a quarterback this whole season. I don't think it's happened one time. Right. So they don't have that in the game plan. And okay. you're not just going to make it up. You know, I know they made it up on the fly against Tulane when no one cares or Austin P. you know, to keep the fans in the stadium or whatever Kiffin said. But this is Auburn. This is SEC game on the road. Like, you're not going to bullshit your way through the game. Altmeyer knows what he's supposed to do. He can throw the ball better than Plumlee. He is more athletic than people will give him credit for. They could just keep going with what they were doing on offense in the game with Altmeyer. whereas if Plumlee goes in there, I mean, he just can't run the offense right now. He, does, he hasn't been in there. He doesn't know it. Um, and he probably just can't execute the way they thought Luke could. And I'm not surprised later in the season that we got to this point because he's had the practice and the ability to see what needs to be done. And that's what, probably why he played. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think that probably mirrors my thoughts on it pretty closely. And now you even know a hell of a lot better than I am. I did. It's just, it's interesting. Like after seeing what, look, I didn't think that Rich Rod offense worked per se, but just seeing the spurts of success and the explosiveness of it, I'm just, I'm a little surprised that you're, like you mentioned, it's not even really in the game plan. And like, I don't think it's there, period. Because in game two, when you're crushing Austin P or whatever it was, you know, Kiffin makes the joke, like, we put Plumlee into the fans would stay, and Levy radios down on the headset and goes, you know he hasn't run any of these plays, right? And he's like, ah, oh, whatever, he'll be fine. So, clearly, it's it's not even there, which, obviously, I mean, you can't do it if it's not, you know, in the game plan and there. So, I don't know. Exactly. I guess that chip is officially sailed. We can now do that in October 31st, 2021. The Plumlee quarterback thing is finally gone. So, it all comes back in, and – so it's 14 to 10, and I'm sitting there thinking, man, if the defense gets another stop here, Ole Miss is really cooking with gas because if they get a stop, it's probably going to come somewhere with about, what, five, six minutes left in the half. I want to make sure I have the time right. And then you score. If they score again, then you get the ball after halftime. Auburn marches right down the field and scores. Ole Miss answers them. So at that point, it's 21-17. I thought the most crucial drive of the game or one of the most crucial drive of the game, maybe the most consequential. I'll just go ahead and – Firmly squat on the take. Auburn's going down with three minutes or two minutes and change at the end of the first half in what was a sped up version of their offense, it seemed like a little bit, and not completely, um, you know, what they were trying to do, which is running the ball and give Knicks easy throws. They had to speed up a little bit on that last drive, and Ole Miss kind of letting them go through them like a knife through butter for the lack of a better phrase, to go up 2017 and Ole Miss completely wasting the opportunity to double up really swayed this game. I mean, hell, it put it to 11 points and the game finishes an 11-point game. I thought that was a really deflating moment, but that maybe didn't necessarily feel deflating in the moment just because Ole Miss had, I guess, kind of survived enough, get the quarterback back. But, man, if they had could have just gotten that stop, even if they don't go down and score off of it, if you go into halftime 21-17 – that feels like a huge win, and I thought I just thought that was a pretty crucial moment in the game. You're 100 percent right. It was it was a frustrating to watch because uh, you would have thought the defense had kind of settled in by then, and Auburn just schemed them up again in the first half. I mean, in the, the touchdown play, they put 
Hunter, like wing back and Tyson Johnson just completely didn't even notice that he was there and just was just an easy flat route with like 15 seconds left. I mean, you're one play away from them having to kick a field goal, which you consider a huge win. And uh, Craig, it's credit to Bobo and Harson for drawing up that play. I mean, it was so easy. And that you're definitely correct. That was a very crucial moment. You're probably not pressing later in the game. You get the ball back. It's just – it was really killer. It might not have felt like it because you assumed the offense was going to wake up, um, but that was probably a, a not something you should have been assuming considering the personnel in Corral. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It didn't feel deflating because it's like, hey, 11 points with this offense, like, you know, no, no big deal, particularly you getting the ball first, but you're right. I mean, it is a big deal because of how shorthanded they were and Corral clearly wasn't healthy. That's an 11 place, 69 yards that I'm referencing. And so I say like a knife through butter and march down the field, but I mean, it took two minutes and 31 seconds. I mean, you're talking Bigsby two yard run wide open pass to Jackson for 16 yards. They stop him uh, for no gain with Bigsby. Then you go 14, 14, 11, and six yard pass. There's a couple of missed tackles in there in between. I guess that's the most frustrating part of it. It wasn't even Auburn gashing on miss with the run. They just gave Nick's four easy throws that consumed about what 50 something yards of that 60 yards, 69 yeah. yards, probably, but they probably had 19, 20 yards running on that drive. That was a deflating moment. And then Ole Miss comes out in the first drive in the second half. And, you know, I guess this is a credit to the defense, but I don't know about you when Ole Miss goes three and out, to the first drive of the second half, I was like, well, they're kind of screwed now. Like their one advantage was getting the ball first after halftime, score a touchdown, make it a one score game, whatever, you know, get points and just try to force Auburn into a mistake or try to string together one stop. When Auburn has it 28, 17 after getting Ole Miss, Ole Miss stopping Ole Miss, I, I thought Ole Miss was in deep trouble at that point. Yeah. So did I, I thought, I mean, I wasn't going to say game over, but it was, just kind of what we had seen from the first half, just just a lack of execution, really a lack of uh, – oh, here comes the Astros. Um, really just a lack of me able to run the ball consistently in short yardage. It killed them again on that first drive where they just are not being able to get a push. Uh, Parrish and Snoop really didn't even play that bad. Uh, I just They just could not get a push continuously throughout the night, and it killed them. On so many of those fourth down situations, third down situations, they just – I think they're going to have to really look at how they approach third down now with the amount of people they have out. They just got to get more aggressive. You can't just, you know, play the two plays for, you know, five yards game anymore because it just has not been as successful, at least in two games this year, um, doing that and just being okay with having to go for it. Um I think y'all let Corral make a few throws and he was a little off tonight and that probably didn't help. But uh, it, early in the second half, it, it was killer. And it just, you had so many opportunities again to make it a different ball game and they just couldn't do it. You're getting good at this podcasting thing. Cause that's exactly where I wanted to go next <laughs> and talking about the second half and not being able to capitalize when that's really where all the opportunities were, right. Is the second half. Um, and, you know, Ole Miss, I mean, the chances to kind of get back on into the game really came in the second half because you only got one stop in the first half. When you say talk about, like, can handle third down differently, is this, I mean, are you giving any credence to my simplistic theory that I threw back at you after the Alabama game a month ago where it's like, hey, the best way to, you know, be efficient on fourth down is not have them? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Because the turnovers on downs in the second half were just absolutely brutal. Because Ole Miss gets the stop, right, after – so they force Auburn to punt, and then they 
Auburn, or excuse me, Ole Miss punts. Auburn misses a field goal. They catch a break. And then you had uh, the muff punt and Ole Miss goes on down. So you've now had a, an actual turnover from Auburn um, to no avail to no points. And then you had a missed field goal where you catch a break and you get no points. The turnover on downs, that one, I believe, was what? That was the Casey Kelly fourth and less than Correct. a yard. On that play, that's probably a good place to any to start before we get to the fourth down discussion. Kiffin looked like he was pretty either upset at the situation or upset at Corral. But either way, it was directed at Corral. What what is he mad at on that play? Is it an inaccurate throw? Corral kind of Mahomes side armed it. Just from your analysis of watching it on TV, what was Kiffin upset at? What went wrong there? Was it just as simple as the like him being like, "Why did you throw it that way?" We had that. What did yeah. you see there? I think that was it. I think that they had the play. I mean, Casey, all he had to do was catch the ball, take one step, and it's a first down. They had the play there, and Corral just. Kept got lazy with his feet, didn't really turn his shoulders or his hips and just kind of side-armed it and uh, just wasn't even close. And I think Kiffin was just so frustrated because they had it and that was just going to be it. And when you don't get it, now you're getting second-guessed. And that that was a huge play um, just to get some momentum back. And that was the whole theme of the game is these red zone was just really, really poor. Um and I, that's why he was mad or so, not mad. Just, I think he was just frustrated. He was that they had it basically. Not necessarily. I mean, you're right. It was a, defa- a huge play in the game, but I think it was also a telling play. And what I mean by that, and I didn't want to completely talk out of my ass because I don't know quarterback mechanics, but I thought that's what he was upset about. And I thought that play and the way it played out spoke to two things. Do you think the sidearm, like you mentioned, just didn't really like had it put his feet in the right place. Do you think that's just a quarterback mistake or do you think that it had anything to do about his health status with both of his feet, both of his ankles? Cause there's just no, I, I don't necessarily believe that the ankle he injured against Tennessee is fully healthy. Like I was under the impression, I mean, hell the announcer said it, it's like, he has two bad ankles here, not one. So do you think that played a part in it? Yeah, he definitely played a small part in it. Uh, he probably <laughs> probably can't feel too much of his left ankle that he hurt in that game that got shot up. So, you know, your feet are feeling different. You probably don't even know what's going down there footwork-wise, um, which is why he made such a weird throw. And all he had to do was just turn and give it to him. I mean, it's damn near a handoff for Corral, and he just really just got kind of lazy with it. And I think that's why Kiffin was so frustrated. He's like, "Where well, we've never even seen that from you. Like, this is such an easy pitch and catch. And you made it so difficult, but I think having the injury probably messes with your footwork and your thought process a little bit, which definitely led to the inaccurate throw. So you're big on this Tortorol or whatever this is. I've heard Pat McAfee talk about this before. He used to take advantage of it as a punter. He has a pretty hilarious podcast segment from a couple years back where he talks about how he could get that shot for him, and then he'd start feeling all warm and fuzzy inside, and then he'd literally be like, I swear to God, if I was on a train tracks, like – and the train was coming at me, I think I could win uh, fresh off a Tortorol shot, like, or whatever. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing whatever it is. But so, yeah, me, not being able to feel your feet seems like a pretty, pretty tough place to be. I mean, like, I'll never experience something like that unless I, like, I don't know, ate LSD or something. I don't think I'll ever be getting a Tortorol <laughs> shot to go to a football game. But that, that could definitely play into it. And the second, in all seriousness, the second part of what I was going to say about that play that spoke to me about their unwillingness and uh, trepidation to run in between the tackles, particularly with the guard situation being what it was. Do you buy into that theory at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, you really, it's your 
I guess, concern with running corral. Because a lot of these fourth down plays, I'd be pretty comfortable, you know, zone reading it, inside zone, corral can keep it if you want to. I mean, get, keep the ball in your best player's hands. And clearly they were concerned about his health and how they were going to handle that uh, on some of these fourth down plays. I mean, they, they weren't letting him do it. They were making him throw the ball, and it happened on all three of them. There was never even a situation where he was going to run it unless it was a scramble. Um, and I think that was definitely concerning and kind of handicapped them when it came to play calling. For sure. Yeah, that's an interesting point I hadn't thought about is on the fourth and inches, I guess half of the effectiveness, effectiveness, particularly when you run out of shotgun, is the option, like the threat of the quarterback running the football. Yeah. Uh, and I guess with that not being there, Auburn seemed pretty convinced that that wasn't going to be there with Corral's health status. So that's another aspect of it I didn't think about. But yeah, I thought that was a very telling play in the game let's just have the fourth down conversation now uh it seems like it's going to pop up anytime Ole Miss has one of these games and they're unsuccessful and you know I, I don't think it's any coincidence the two times we've really had to talk about this are after Ole Miss losses because they finished one of four on third down I think that's actually exactly what they were against Alabama if I'm not mistaken the analytics book made an appearance on the broadcast screen not sure if you saw that but you got your boy Matt Lindsay down there uh, I did see it. I two, did see it. One, before we get that, Lane Kiffin just throwing him under the bus or just throwing a, a, a stray bullet at him. He said the Andy Reid-looking guy, he apparently gave that tidbit to the announcers. Your thoughts on him clowning uh, your guy, Matt Lindsay, and say he looks like Andy Reid. Does he look like Andy Reid? I mean, it, wouldn't that be considered a compliment? Maybe not from a physical stature, but from a, a football-related uh, deal it might be a very nice statement um he looks, nothing like right. he looks nothing like Andy Reed. but uh I did not hear that but I did see and we'll talk about it but I mean that's so for everyone you saw the book it's the CAI book Matt Lindsay has it in his hands on the sidelines and that was the one the last one they did when it was 31 20 right and they went for it instead of kicking the field goal that, I, I think I can't, they showed it once early in the game they may have showed it a second time the time I saw uh, to, so I was disappointed in the book itself. I was hoping it would look more like a Bible. Maybe we could get the <laughs> sides painted in gold and have it binded. But the, the, what I did enjoy was the shroud of mystery of uh, Lindsay having it under a towel. Yes, I know. I think it was light raining. And the reason he probably had it under a towel was to keep it dry. Correct. But I did, I did enjoy the shroud of mystery behind it. <laughs> they may have showed it a second time in the game. But I guess just take me through your thoughts on how analytics played into this game and the fourth downs. Did you have a problem with any one of them? My only I'll – I'll feed you one thought to start it. My only issue is when you start talking about how they don't only go off the book and go by feel, why not – defensive play pretty well. Why not give them an, one more shot? Like, why not try to kick the field goal and give them a chance or play for the points? I mean, Ole Miss ended up leaving nine points out there, so I'm just curious why not give your defense the way they're playing in the second half a shot? Like, if feel's going to factor in – it seemed like you, one of those would have said, you know, kick the field goal, at least would have been enough. But what did you think of each call? So I was okay with the first two and was not okay at all with the last one. The, the analytics and the numbers and all that, a lot of it is much more based on possessions, not points. So if you think about it, you're down eight. It's 28 to 20. They have fourth and two in the first one. You are down one possession. When you kick the field goal, assuming you make it, you're still down one possession. You can't think about the two-point conversion. It's possessions, not points. 
So the first two times he went for it when they were in the red zone, if he kicks field goal both times, you're still losing. So it does it, it's like it's you're not gaining anything. You can say, oh, it gains confidence. Oh, it puts pressure on Auburn. But that's the whole point of keeping that mindset out of it because that doesn't mean shit, whether how Auburn feels. Auburn has been running the ball down your throat the whole game. And the first time they went for it, it was only like nine minutes left in the third quarter. At that point, you really didn't know your defense had stepped up yet. They had given up a touchdown on four or five possessions. You're down there. You don't know how much you're going to be down there with the personnel injuries you've got. Um, I have no issues with that one. And then the second one, it's still 28 to 20. It's fourth and five. Um, Kiffin was clearly pissed off that they let them get that timeout in before the play started. He, he was clearly frustrated about that. And then – they run the play, and Bryce Ramsey just whiffs on the block, and the guy just gets right in the backfield, and it was it was dead before it started. Those two, I'm, I'm okay with it. Even when I was watching the game at the reception, I was like, all right, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. And of course, a bunch of these, you know, Memphis geezers that are out there at the wedding, they're like, what the hell is going on? Like, I don't know football. Like, why are we not kicking the field goal? And I'm not – I'm just too – you know, partially too drunk and partially too just frustrated to even try to have a legitimate conversation with them, um, including my dad, who was asking what the hell was going on. Um, but that that back to the point, it's possession, not points. You go by the possessions. How many are you going to have left in the game? How many possessions are you down? And does a field goal really even help you win the football game? And at that point, both going forward on both those fourth downs, you really gain nothing. You're either you're still down one possession, and of course you kick two. Okay, now you're still down one possession. <laughs> you're just down two points, and cost has been great. There's no guarantee he makes the field goal, so it's just it just I was totally okay with those. Now the third one, when it's thirty-one to twenty, that made no sense to me, and that was the 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 shot they had of Matt looking at kind of confused at the book. And Kiffin going for it. Um, now you're down two possessions. It's 31 to 20. You kick a field goal, you're back to one possession. You still give your defense a shot to stop them and get the ball back. And he goes for it again. And I, I just didn't agree with that at all. I, I cannot believe, and I don't know it, but I, I truly don't believe it probably told you to go for it. I don't know why he did it. And I totally understand the criticism from that one. Um, I don't, I didn't make a lot of sense to me from the, the points possession standpoint, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know why they did it. It was another bad kind of execution on fourth down, which seemed to be kind of a weird trend you've seen on the road with them. So overall, I think decision-wise, he went two for three, in my opinion. But execution-wise, they went over for three. And it was pretty poor. I had a similar line of thinking to you on both of them. The first one I have no problem with. Look, every they, the first one's a – a modern day and age of football go for it. Everyone's going for it in that one. situation. I mean, yeah, it's that that was a no-brainer. You could semi-question the second one because it was like fourth and five or six. So that's the only pushback I was going to have. That's So, Mike, it's fourth and – just to set the scene, it's fourth and seven with a minute 13 to go in the third quarter on the 13-yard line, and Ole Miss is down 28 to 20 at this point. I understand the line of thinking of, like, the field goal – is rather worthless at that point. Although I don't necessarily think in the third quarter, it's completely worthless the way the game's going and your defense playing a little better. I think getting it to 28, 23, at least gives, gives your defense some wiggle room in the sense that Auburn has a pretty good kicker 
And so I just think like if you, you know, if, if they get inside, you know, the 30 yard line of Ole Miss, like you're giving the defense an out, right? They can allow a field goal and it still be a one possession game at eight points, 31, 23, if you're following me. But I also understand wanting to get the touchdown there. The only pushback that I would have is the way they had executed in the red zone to that point, and as shorthanded as they were, and you have an injured quarterback, is there any – like, I know you can't play that way. I know you can't say, well, we yeah. sucked in the red zone tonight, so we can't go for it there. I understand that not yeah. that line of thinking makes no sense and, like, that you can't play it that way. But do you think that could have – like, could have, would have, should have factored in to the decision there at all? Um, it being – them being limited – it being in the red zone and the crowd not really having any targets to throw to. Do you buy into that at all? Cause I didn't necessarily have a problem with it either. I just, that one was a more iffy. It was a no brainer iffy and a terrible to me. Yeah. Uh, it, I'm sure it, it should at least factor into it a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, that's just not the way I would think about it. And it's clearly not the way they think about it because if you look at it as a whole, the three questionable decisions. If you kick three field goals there, you still lose the football game. You lose 31-29. So that's why it, it's just you just you can't think about it from just a one play standpoint. You have to think about it throughout the rest of the game. What's going to happen? And you're down eight points. You kick three field goals and those three opportunities, you lose. So yeah, you didn't get them. So it did not help your ability to score a touchdown and win. But Kicking all three field goals, first of all, assuming you make all three field goals, right, which is not you still lose the football game. And that's why it's so hard for people who haven't seen this or under. I mean, I don't even fully understand all of the analytics. I don't get to read the book every single day. I've seen it, I've helped, you know, put it together. Um, But it's not that complicated. It's does this give us the best chance to win the football game? And field goals on the road at Auburn. At that point in time, you're down. It doesn't help you win. And if you look at it from the standpoint, you lose if you kick three field goals no matter what. So I don't agree with the last one because the circumstances were different. When you're down 11, a field goal makes it back to a one-possession game. But the first two, you're down one possession. You kick both of them, you're still losing. And that's the whole point. Who cares how many points you lose by if you still lose? So it's just – I don't understand people get so frustrated by it. They're frustrated because it didn't work. And it's like uncommon to see it. And it's confusing to watch it and play out this way. But all in all, it kind of became moot because they couldn't convert. But you still lose if you kick three field goals. Uh, so I don't – the all of the frustration, I think, is just from the, the result, not necessarily the application of the, of the analytics. I tend to agree. Although someone tagged me in a tweet earlier and now maybe they deleted it or I just can't find it. There was some sort of statistic, one of those probability Twitter accounts about uh, throughout the course of a football game and actually said, allegedly, according to this account, I wish I could find it because it's really, Oh, here it is. AI sports fourth. I don't know what that means, but college for- football fourth down bot says fourth and three at the Auburn 18 if you go for it, it has a success rate of 53%. Uh, field goal has 75% chance, and your chances to win go up 7% versus 5 or 12% versus 5%. Um, 
again, that's just one account. This is talking about the last one. I, I just, I'm with you. I don't necessarily buy into that. Why not make it a one possession game? You were going to have to have two anyway to extend the game or force overtime. So like that is an analytic, I guess, for the lack of a better phrase saying go for it, but I don't buy into that. Like, do you think that's what Kiffin's book told them? Is that anywhere in the same line of thinking? It's definitely possible. I, I still don't agree with it. Um, I mean, it's like the situation um, if it's one minute left in the game and you're driving. Um, I think we saw it in an NFL game last week. Um, if it's 45 seconds left and you have to score twice, that's when you throw the, the field goal team out there. You kick the field goal. Now you're only down seven. You just onside kick it because that's really your only chance to win. So now it's kind of not the same because the timing's different, but the, the thought process should be the same where, okay, our best chance is not to go for it here because who knows if we could even score a touchdown after we get it. Get it back to one possession. We played well in defense this whole half. Give the offense another opportunity to go down there and score. Don't even worry about the two-point conversion. You're just happy to score and have the opportunity to tie the game up because that's just the thought process. So I don't really – I honestly don't even care what that Twitter thing said. I don't agree with it at all. And I, it very well could have been in there as this was the situation – but I just don't know if I really believe that that was the best call at that time. Last part of this, I tend to agree with you. I just don't understand that aspect of it. But, hey, whatever, I can recognize that the numbers say, okay, cool, go for it. Um, The last thing I wanted to get to about this, you hit on this earlier. You mentioned uh, they're going to need to start handling third down differently. You explained a little bit, but, like, kind of expand on that. What do you mean by that? With Because it is – I think this plays hand-in-hand with the fourth down conversation is handling third down differently. What do you mean by that? I think – They've kind of – it seems like they've handled third down as we had the full playbook. The numbers say run the ball on third and eight, you know, get halfway and go for it on fourth down. We'll do it. And they've done that the whole year, and it's it's had mixed success. And they have they have been successful on fourth downs. Of course, the two games they lose, they haven't. So it kind of skews that thought process. Um, but what all I meant by it was I think you got to start trying to get to the sticks. you got to start trying to convert the third down instead of accepting that it's, you know, two downs to get the first down. Um, I just can't think we keep – you can't keep giving it up to chance, especially with all the injuries you have, um, all the playmakers you have missing that kind of skews what you can do on fourth down, especially if Corral can't be mobile. So all I'm saying is just they have to be more aggressive on trying to convert the third down instead of accepting the fact that they'll have two downs to get the first down, just not leaving it up to fourth down every single time, like really working to try to convert third down. How much of uh, the shorthanded personnel, if, if Ole Miss is going to play another game at receiver, like the way they did this one, how much do you think that factors into it as well? Or do you just think it's a change in strategy no matter whether you're fully healthy or not? I mean, I don't even think they'll do it. I'm just saying yeah, what I think they enough. should do. So, who, I mean, they're not, they're not listening to this. They, they don't care. Um I think it factors into it a little bit, but I also think that you're just going to have to, you got to play with the players you have. And that shouldn't really dictate all that you do on offense. But I think that we've seen the enough sample size of what can happen on these fourth down plays where, especially even if it's on your side of the field, sometimes there's just not very aggressive on third down trying to really get it. Um, and I think that's just definitely going to have to change, at least in my opinion, of course, which, like we said, they don't give a shit about, but still. 
Fair enough. And then the game, of course, effectively ends or definitely ends after the last one. Uh, one quick note on the kicking situation. The one fourth down that was not a question was fourth and 25. I imagine the analytics book says to kick that one. Uh, Altmar just kind of steps up and nails. I'm not, this is a complete non, like this is not related to talking about for field goals, not being a guarantee. Uh, I just made a note of this and wanted to put it in the podcast. Uh, Ole Miss was really reeling what it was 28, 17 Auburn punts again. And you're thinking, man, they got to get some kind of points here. And they get all the way down to the 17 yard line of Auburn. And they end up kicking from the 32. You had a, Offensive holding and then an incompletion. So, sorry, false start on Umana, offensive holding on Broker, and then uh, incompletion. Uh, and then Costa just comes in and nails a 49-yarder like it's nothing. But that game could have really gotten squirrely had that stayed 28-17 just from a you know, demoralizing standpoint uh, at that point. You've gotten three stops at that point, and you have zero to show for it. I thought that was a pretty ballsy kick there by Costa. He just kind of stepped up and nailed it. That's a freshman on the road in a pretty raucous environment. Yeah, he's been great. Um, and I think I think that's also kind of getting into some of these issues with not kicking it is because at least Ole Miss, you think you've got a guy that can make a lot of them, which is true. He's been great. Um, and that that's helpful. And I think it, it was helpful in the LSU game when he made that one. That was big. Um, but uh, it, it was a good boost, and it helped them get back into the game and not feel like this thing was getting out of hand. Um, but clearly they don't have – they're just not worried about how well he's kicking it because they're just going to do what they do, which is fine. So just kind of bouncing around, we handled the way the game went. I don't think there's really any much more to get at. Uh, another aspect of this, you mentioned like them not necessarily running the ball terribly, but Ole Miss runs it – I mean, they do run it 40 – no, excuse me, 39 times for 157 yards – in my mind, I agree with you. There were times where I didn't think they ran it terribly at all, but they really struggled between the tackles. And when you have a game like this where, one, your quarterback's a little beat up, two, you're definitely depleted in the receiving core. If Ole Miss was going to win this game, I wrote on Thursday or Friday that they were going to have to get, you know, close to the 225, 250-yard mark rushing to have a chance. I just thought the run game needed to be really good, particularly what you were dealing with a receiver, and I would say it was pedestrian at best. I thought that really played a role in this game as well. Their inability to get large chunk plays. They didn't get very many of the 19 to 25-yard runs or 15 to 25-yard runs in this game, and uh, I thought that put a lot of stress on both Corral and a depleted receiving core. Yeah, I, I going back and watching the game, it was pretty clear they ran the ball much more effectively out of the pistol than they did out of – I just I just noticed it with Parrish and Snoop. I think they scored that Snoop touchdown out of the pistol. Maybe you see a little bit more of that, a little more head of steam, giving the offensive line a little more momentum. I mean, I'm sure they noticed these things, not just me. Um, but when it was just straight up, you know, typical shotgun setback, they really struggled to get momentum. They really struggled to run outside or inside. Um, the numbers weren't that bad. I think they both ran for like four and a half yards of carry, but they ran the ball a lot and it just wasn't setting the tone like it can for this offense. Um, so that's kind of where it's, you know, it, the numbers might not look that bad, but from a, just a efficiency and when they needed it standpoint, it was not great. You had very few of the, if not, there may have been zero. You had very few of, and zero of the first down runs where they get like 20 yards and then they go tempo and they kind of compound two productive plays 
into one. And by that, I mean, like how many times have you seen Ole Miss get like 16, 17 yards on like a first down run? They go up to the line of scrimmage quickly and hit them with either another run or a quick hitting pass play. That lacking seemed to be a real hiccup or roadblock for this offense that Auburn did a good job of, I guess, limiting Ole Miss in the run game in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, another aspect of this, Ely, three carries for one yard. What You saw 12 carries from Parrish, 10 from Connor. A week after they seemed to kind of play all the right notes with all three backs, I mean, Ely even had a quote after that game where he's like, I still don't think you've seen us quite all three clicking at the same time, and it could be pretty special when it is. What are your thoughts on why that was the case? I have no thoughts. I do not know why he didn't play as much. Um, I, I just don't know. Uh, I'm not even really questioning it. I, I don't think it's necessarily that big of a deal. Um, I, they must just not be very confident in him. And I know he played relatively well against LSU, but that's not a good football team. And I, I, I do not know why he didn't play as much as he did. Uh, maybe they saw something early that they didn't like. Maybe he messed up a few assignments and they said, screw it. Um, needed a bigger back to kind of deal with the physicality of Auburn, maybe. I, I just don't know. I really can't tell you why or what yeah. happened there. It's bizarre for a guy that's looked really good at times this year, right? I mean, LSU may have been his best game. He has the two third down runs that changed the game. Uh, and just to have these games where he, he'll go two, three games sometimes where you don't see a lot of him, it's, it's strange to me. If you're putting yourself in the coaching staff's shoes, and I know I'm asking you a question basically as a follow-up that you said you didn't have a ton of thoughts on, but how do you think they view him? Like there has to be some sort of somewhat obvious surface-level reason of why this is happening. How do you think they see him as a runner? Or is it more about the other two? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think they definitely have more confidence in the other two to run the inside zone between the tackles. Um, just as more physical, more one-cut guys, and they see Ely as the speed back to kind of change the pace a little bit. But they didn't really change the pace at all with the run game throughout this entire game. Um, not as many jet sweeps. I guess they saw something on film. They didn't think – maybe they thought the DBs of Auburn were a little more quicker and physical than LSU. But I, I just really don't know what happened there. Um Maybe he was just didn't have a good week of practice. Maybe they thought this was the way to go. Um, but it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, I'm not even questioning it. It just I just don't know. It just seems very odd after a week where he kind of felt like he got it back in rhythm to kind of come out here and just really not be a factor at all. Agree. It is it's it's mystifying to some degree. And you're you're heading into a week where you're gonna need him. I mean, you brought up the corral aspect of it, I guess we can hit a couple more big picture thoughts, but like next week, I mean, you'd love to sit on Liberty. You'd love to run for 300 plus yards and you know, whether, whether I don't know if Corral plays or not, but like you're definitely going to, you would hope to run it, kind of survive one more game, get some receivers healthy, and then, you know, enter a pretty crucial three game stretch to end your season. And it's certainly not trending in the right direction, I guess, from an Ely standpoint and the running game as a whole heading into a game where, you know, your running game could really give you a, not a pseudo bye week, but a lot of opportunities to either rest some guys or just get by uh, for one more week and get a little bit healthier. So it's, it's bizarre. I don't know. What did you think of Auburn in this game? I thought Knicks was pretty good for the most part, uh, but I didn't think Ole Miss put them in very many stressful situations. You know, Bo goes 22 at 30, but 
you know, I wasn't overly impressed with him. I was like, yeah, this is about what I thought. I mean, he had a couple throws where if he hits the guy on the money, it's a much larger gain. It's like kind of the full-on Bo Nix experience. Just what did you think of how Auburn approached this game? I thought they had a decent game plan defensively and really out-schemed Ole Miss on offense for much of the night. Yeah, they, they definitely had Ole Miss's number for at least two and a half of the four quarters on offense. Uh, Bobo had a pretty good game plan. Under center, out of shotgun, a lot of multiple stuff, a lot of different packages, probably kind of offensive mindset that Ole Miss hadn't really seen this year, um, which was definitely concerning to me before the game. Uh, Nick's plays really well at home. That's not a hot take. You just look at the numbers. He's just a different player at home, and he was re really efficient but never had much in his face, really didn't have to make a lot of hard throws. And uh, I know the game plan is keep everything in front of you, and they did that. Really didn't have a lot of huge plays, which is good. Um, but, they, I mean, they're a good football team. They're, they're athletic on defense. Um, their DBs are very athletic. Um, they have a decent defensive line and some really good linebackers. I think Popoe and McLean played really, really, really well. Um, they've got a pretty tough game next week with a and I think they go there. Um, so that'll be a tough one for them, uh, probably a little letdown spot. And I think a and kind of rounding into form. Uh, but they're a threat. They, If they play the perfect game and Alabama does not play the perfect game, they can beat them in Jordan-Air. They definitely can. I don't know if they will, but they definitely can. They, uh, they look pretty good, and that's why it's so weird. It's like Ole Miss could have won this football game. Yep. But Auburn, they're a good football team, and if you make mistakes and don't capitalize, they're going to beat you. So they're very like, opportunistic. Yeah. Tennessee team. couldn't do that. Auburn could. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Auburn like didn't even do anything overly well. When you just look at their base level stats, I hit on this earlier in the week in the podcast. It's like they're six to 10th in pretty much everything other than pressuring the quarterback. They do a pretty damn good job of that, but they're just very average and opportunistic and like, they don't beat themselves. That's for sure. I, I mean, what they turned it over. I say that in a game, they turned it over twice in, but it's kind of you know, muff punt, weird deal, and then a fumble. But they just seem very in control, and they make you kind of make plays to beat them, to use a simplistic phrase there. But, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. They win that A&M game. That Iron Bowl could, uh, could get weird. It is in Auburn. So, we'll see. Where does Ole Miss go from here? Like, they, it's, they're in a very interesting place. They had a brutal month of October. They go three and two in it, five weekends, right? You win the LSU-Arkansas game, lose to Alabama, and lose to Auburn. So, they, you know, they take losses to both the Alabama schools in the first and last uh, week of the month. Now you're in a pretty crucial stretch in November, and this team is beat up. I guess the first thing would get healthy, but how do you kind of view this team's outlook Going forward, you mentioned the corral situation. You have a weird team in Liberty coming next week. I don't think they have the athletes to beat Ole Miss, but I mean, you do have an NFL prospect quarterback coming in. And if corral can't play, then, you know, all bets are off in terms of how that thing goes. I think I'm not looking forward to this Hugh free storyline all week, but just how do you view this team as they head into a pretty important month in November? Cause there's still so much to play for, but it's like, are they just going to be able to keep their head above water long enough for it to matter? Yeah, I, I think they'll be fine versus Liberty. If Corral plays, Liberty is not that good of a football team. I, Willis is a pretty dynamic player, but th they're not very good. They're not what, we, what people thought they could have been going into the season. Uh, it'd be a great week to just everyone stay healthy and get a win and be happy and continue to kind of survive the rest of the month. Um, A&M's at home. 
and this team plays much better at home, I, it's going to be a really tough football game. Um, and I don't know what I, – I wouldn't see that as a game that you would expect to win just from the circumstance of where the personnel is at and all the injuries and everything. And that front seven for A&M is a handful. Um, but they do play a lot better at home. Vanderbilt, they can sleepwalk through that one. They're not even trying. And, of course, it'll probably come down, you know, if you somehow squeak out against A&M. Uh, Mississippi State, credit to them. Has they're playing really better, too. On. Yeah, they're playing a lot better. Of course, they love, you know, punching up but they're definitely capable of getting punched from the bottom um, as a favorite. And we'll see that. I think they, they go to Arkansas this week. Um, and that'll be a very interesting game. At least I'll definitely at least look at that one. Arkansas coming off a bye, Mississippi State with momentum. That's usually when Mike Leach, you know, calls a shit game and it doesn't work. Um, so I don't know. It, it's going to be a tough stretch. I think you've got two wins and two games that are winnable. Um, you're just going to have to really play well on both sides of the ball for both of those. And um, I'm still confident. I, I still think they can I, – I kind of expect nine and three, I, but they can get to ten and two. If Kraut plays, who even cares if he's healthy, they will have a chance in every game. Um, it just depends on how healthy he really is because I have a pretty good feeling that he is definitely not going to be healthy. I mean, that's a, this is a rest of the year thing, right? There's if he yeah. plays all four games, even if he sits one of them, there's not really a scenario where he's healthy. Like it's just kind of getting him through the rest of this year, right? I mean, it would be right. interesting to kind of hear. I mean, I guess I, I, I'm not even going to say that because we're not going to learn anything on Monday. Kiffin might do the whole stir the pot thing like he's done before. Sure. And, but I don't think you'll actually learn much about his status. Maybe, you know, someone will do some digging and you kind of figure out through, you know, reporting and sourcing and stuff like that, but you're not going to learn a lot, but it is an interesting spot. This team is in, they have two wins. Assuming crawl plays all four games. They have two wins on the schedule like that. They're not Vanderbilt's not beating Ole Miss. Liberty's not beating Ole Miss. And then there's two toss-ups and that's the difference between 10 and two and eight and four. And look, I think in year two on the paper, everyone that's an Ole Miss fan, I think would have taken eight and four in year two of this thing. You're certainly heading in the right direction. Yes, you do have a lot to replace after the year, but look, eight and four is something that Ole Miss just doesn't do a whole lot of. And so I think on paper, you would have taken it, but I think with the way the middle of this month of October went, I think eight and four would, would sully momentum is such a stupid term just because like that, I don't know how real and tangible that is, but it would feel like a little bit of a disappointment, wouldn't it? Like yeah, them limping home, and you get to six and one, and then they limp home down the stretch. I guess is kind of what I'm getting at. You, an opportunity to go three and one and four and zero, oh, I think, could do a whole lot for you know not only this team but kind of the future as well. I think it's a crucial four weeks. But how much did do you buy in in terms of the difference between going two and two versus three and one or four and zero? Oh? Well, I think it's huge, um, just from a momentum standpoint, from a capitalizing on the quarterback you've got standpoint. And Ole Miss has never won ten regular season games before. Ever. They have never won 10 games. I mean, obviously, they've won the bowl games. They've gotten to 10. But they've never won 10 in a regular season before. And they've got a great shot to do it this year. And that would be an awesome achievement on a season that's been very weird and kind of up and down um, with injuries and everything. Uh, I, I would be pretty disappointed with eight and four. And I think not because you wouldn't have been excited preseason, but just the way it's gone, that would kind of – not take away from the momentum of what the program's doing, but just kind of put a 
a little cold water on what the season could have been down the stretch if that ends up being the case. Right. And just so we don't get well actuated and I don't have to roll my eyes at reading through the Twitter stuff, you're talking modern era here. Like the- when football matters. Yeah. There sorry. I'm not counting the, you know, the 50s. Yeah. Modern era. They've not, they, I don't think they've won 10 football games in a regular season. No, I don't believe they have either. Uh, but I just wanted to get that out there as clarification. But no, you're right. It's, it's an interesting spot because this team, it's, yeah. it's post post integration. Yeah. When, yes. when, there we <laughs> go. That, that's a great, we, we love our three championships in the sixties, but post once football got real. Yeah. I mean, it's important. I mean, Helen, you got to go on the road for the egg bowl and States playing much better in the second half of the year. It's going to be fascinating. These final four games for better, or for worse. Do you think Liberty is an issue if Corral has to sit? No, they'll win this game. They'll really? figure it out. No, no, that's not a good football team. I, Willis is a, pretty dynamic player but they're i just you know freeze will pull out all the stops he, he's gonna try to win this game but they, they're not as good as Ole Miss they will find a way even if it's Altmeyer. I think they're winning that game and they'll definitely beat Vanderbilt it could be uh it could be me back there at quarterback and they, they would beat Vanderbilt so I'm not worried about those two that doesn't mean you sit them if you can play you play them and you win but I, I think you could probably win both those games with Altmeyer if need be this is the dumbest discussion or posing question of all time, and I'm going to do it anyway. Would you feel better about Ole Miss's chances with Altmaier playing quarterback against Auburn or Liberty? Or Scott, that was so – I even botched that. Vanderbilt or Liberty? Uh, I'd feel better against Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt I would too. sucks. <laughs> Sorry to my little brother who goes there. They are terrible. They fight. They, they, they showed a little bit of fight against Missouri, but I don't care. I mean, they, they will beat Vanderbilt with Altmeyer if he's the quarterback in the situation. Liberty, I think just with freeze, I mean, there's going to be trick plays. There's going to be so much bullshit in that game, and they have a pretty dynamic quarterback. I'd feel less confident, but I still think they'd win with him. I'm in this exact same boat, right? Because when you have a, a you know an NFL prospect at quarterback, at least has the opportunity to, you know, the guy makes some plays and the game gets a little weird, where Vanderbilt just seems completely and totally hapless. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I, I you know, it, it's going to be an interesting month. And to use a Mount Luke cliche, they remember what you do in November. And I think that's, you know, kind of more true, maybe so true. than some other years with this game. I mean, this is this, this last month is certainly going to define how people view this season, whether that's fair or unfair. So I, I think that we kind of covered all of it. The only other thing I had written down in the notes was Braylon Sanders. I, I don't want to get, I, I hate doing this and I don't want to tread too much into this, but Neil kind of brought it up a little bit after the game where it's he's dressed out and doesn't give it a go. And he's missed two games with whatever injuries had. He's had injuries throughout his career. What's kind of the your your view of what Braylon Sanders is in his career? Because it seems like he's been injury riddled, but I just thought it was weird where you have Drummond limping around. I'm not insinuating that the kid's not milking it or not trying to play. I like please don't mistake this for that. But you did have a, a clearly compromised Drummond limping around out there. And they never entered Sanders into the game. What did you make of that? And just what do you make of Braylon Sanders at this point in his career? Your best ability is your, your availability. And for the four or five years Sanders has been here, he has just not been available. And in the beginning of the season, when Kiffin said, yeah, like he's got the talent of a first round receiver. And I was kind of like, that's great and all, but this guy doesn't play in a football game. Which and, I believe Kiffin, like, you know, that was kind of his qualifier. Yes, he did. He, he did mention that as well. He's like, we just got to keep him out here. But he hasn't been able to do it. And 
whether it's fair or not, when you go through four seasons and you have a lot of injuries and you don't play, you get the reputation that he has gotten. And at some point, you kind of are who you are. <laughs> you can only, you know, deviate from it so much. I'm not saying he's not hurt. I'm not saying he's soft. But at some point, you know, a spade's a spade. And he's he just so many injuries. And I, he may not be able to play through them. They may be so serious that that's the case. And we don't know that. But that's the way it is with Kiffin. So you get people kind of assuming what they have to assume about the situation. And, <clears throat> excuse me, to be honest, it's hard to blame him at this point because he just isn't healthy a lot and he hasn't really pushed through a lot and people have played with worse injuries. So I, I don't know what to think about it. I don't necessarily think he's not injured, but at some point it kind of is what it is. Okay. You just that where I was going to steer it for the, like, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you kind of went there towards the end. I was going to ask, I don't want to get into a toughness softness debate with any of these kids. Cause I think that's dumb no. for a couple of podcasters watching at home, but are, are there, in your experience, are there kids that are more comfortable playing a game and going out and playing and feeling that they can do their job despite being compromised than others? Like, I'm not saying he's like you mentioned, I'm not saying soft or anything like that, but like Corral, I feel like, I mean, his quote after the game was he told the guys during the MRI, nothing's broken. I'm going out there and playing. Whereas do you think there's some other guys where the ankle is not feeling great and they don't feel as comfortable going out and performing. And so they just don't do it. If that makes any sense at all. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that can be the case all the time. Um, I, the difference is if you're a receiver who can't run and cut and play at full speed, you might, you're, you're not useful out there really. Um, it's just, you can't really do much with it. And for Braylon, if he doesn't feel comfortable out there doing what he needs to do then you know it's just why why play you just have someone out there that could run full speed it may not be the same player but it's still better than half speed um so yeah some guys will probably play more hurt uh, than others but it just kind of depends on what the actual injury is and the position and everything of how much can you really contribute if you are hurt so who knows? Makes sense. Well put. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I think we've just about covered everything on Miss Wise. Before we get to the fastest growing segment on American soil, another light SEC slate. If I had a minor uh, complaint, I don't think they do the bye week smartly. And I don't want to make this an anti Ole Miss thing. Well, actually, I just skipped over my notes. Do you want to, how much do you want to get in the officiating? Uh, I mean, I'll hit it for two seconds. I watched. Okay. So it was game. very last night. It was Neil and Chase led off my post game segment with it, and you know they're not ones to do that unless it's egregious. And like I watched the game a second time today, it was pretty egregious. The non PI call on Casey Kelly versus the couple ones that were called on Ole Miss. The OPI on whoever that was down the sideline was one of the worst OPI calls I've ever seen. I didn't even think that was in the realm of possibility that that flag would be thrown for a play like that. I didn't even turn. I think at that point I turned around to talk to someone and it was like, what do you mean there's a flag? And so what's your take as someone who's worked inside a program on officiating? Because it's very, very clearly seen one-sided. I don't think there's a conspiracy. I think it's incompetence, but it was bad last night. It, it was bad. It was a situation where Auburn, I think the penalties like technically were even, but it was very bizarre. 
all the penalties that were all missed were of like very serious consequences. There was the off uh, the pass interference on Springer, the non PI call on Kelly, the OPI on Dennis, the block in the back on Sam Williams, um, Matt Corral getting his face mask grabbed before he throws the interception. Call or no call, they were all serious. And then Auburn, they had like five penalties on freaking kickoffs and punts. Yes, where like no one gives a shit if you actually get one. It sucks for field position. If so there were looked, a conspiracy, that's making the numbers look a little even. It, it was weird. Um, there's no conspiracy. Yeah, the calls were pretty bad. That There's no doubt about it. And it kind of screwed with the flow of the game for Ole Miss on both sides of the ball. They were pretty crucial, and it was not officiated well, and we've seen this over and over again in the SEC, so nothing's going to change. But that's not why they lost the football game. No, 100%. At all. They had their chances to win despite all of the issues with the officiating. It was bad. There's no doubt about it. It was a lot worse than I remembered it watching it today. But at still, at the end of the day, they had so many chances to win this game. And the officials, they made their statement. <laughs> it became a ref show, but that wasn't the reason they lost. What are your thoughts on Ken Williamson being a real estate uh, crew chief, being a real estate agent in Alabama? Yeah, I saw that. I mean, not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not insinuating, but like, I guess what, what I was going to, I don't even need to tee you up for anything. What you get is what, like, this is what you get for putting, I'm talking to fans out there now. This is what you get for putting your emotional investment in a sport that makes FIFA look like a well-run operation yeah. and European soccer be, we'll get to soccer in a second, feel like an even playing field. College football is not an uneven playing field. When you don't spend on full-time referees, this is what you're going to get. You know why there's not betting lines for high school games? Probably because they're kids, but it's probably because you get screw jobs all the time and the yeah. officiating sucks. And half the time in some small town in Mississippi, it might be somebody's preacher. So this is what you get when you hire part-time officials. Should it be better? Yes. Does the SEC have gobs of money to throw at the problem to make it better? Yes. But they don't want to because you're showing up in the seats every day. You're buying, you know, merchandise i don't know how much they make on merchandise not the same as professional sports you're paying to go to these games and the money just keeps going up and up and up and up from tv revenue so you're still watching the product so there's no incentive for them to change this should they get full-time officials yes till they do this is what it is they're going to suck until they throw money at the problem and they're not going to do it so this is just what kind of what you get for putting your emotional investment in oh i don't want to say crap product but a Bullshit operation from that standpoint. Yeah, I, I've worked in it, obviously, as we said. There, the college football was filled with some of the most bullshit you can honestly – you can't even imagine how much bullshit there is in this sport. This is not the NFL. This is the wild, wild west of bullshit. Um, from officiating to recruiting to just the rules and everything along with it. There's so much nonsense. That's like, why am I spending my time working in this industry? Um, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm not shocked to hear you say that, but it's interesting that crosses your mind and you're definitely not the only one, right? You're like, you do, you work all this time and you're evaluating recruiting prospects. And then uh, some school throws $385,000 at them and it's over. And no, that's not a non-specific number. That's a real one. Oh, um, hell yeah. Love it. Oh, yeah, you like that? Uh, so it, there's so much dumb shit. And I saw that he works in Alabama. And that just helps feed the frustration. It's kind of like when Ed Hockley made that call against the Saints in the NFC Championship game. And then everyone goes, looks at it. And where is Ed Hockley from and lived his entire life? 
Los Angeles. It's like, how the hell are you having him call the game? It's probably, he's probably not, you know, he's probably not doing it on purpose. I, I guarantee you he's not. But at the same time, this is the most important game in the NFL. And the head referee is from the city of one of the teams. And now you have the SEC office in Birmingham and the head referee works and lives in Alabama refereeing a game for Auburn. I don't, I'm not a conspiracy guy. There's no conspiracy here. It's just a bunch of bad referees that don't have a lot of incentive to necessarily get any better. Um, that's and the league really doesn't good. care. If they cared about optics at all, if they cared about any of this, that to me is indicative of how little they care. That a simple yeah. optic that could be fixed. Let's not put Ken Williamson on this game. They don't give a shit because it doesn't affect their bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And there's this whole mindset that like Alabama gets all the calls. That's not true. Bama is just better than everybody. So whenever they get a call, it's like, damn, now we're even more screwed than we already were before the game started. But it's just, I don't know. I, it didn't affect the outcome of the game. I think it's more of a holistic problem than just this game because it's been this way for what feels like kind of a long time. Um, and somebody is going to get really pissed off, whether it's some big money guy with a bet or something. I don't know what it's going to take to change it. It's going to be have to be something pretty dramatic because they clearly don't care. But like I said about Braylon, you know, it is what it is. You can't change it right now. So whatever. Agreed. Let's take a look around the SEC. A light slate. The rant that I was going to get into but didn't was just why. So Ole Miss gets kind of screwed with the bye week in uh, September after four games. And, look, I get it happens. I don't know what goes in the bye week, like, selection. I don't really care, per se. But – you know, the last two weekends, October in Texas, it feels like football weather outside. I'm home for the first time in two weeks, so I'm probably just being cranky and selfish. But, like, you got four games and feels like half the league's on a bye on back-to-back weeks. I don't get that aspect of it. But let's take a glance around the SEC real quick. Um, probably no better place to start than Florida, Georgia. Boy, when you want to – like, when they, when they talk about this elite defense in the history books and if they ever get, like – inducted into anything shouldn't they show the last seven minutes of that second half or five minutes because that was actually kind of a even fight from some perspective not even but Auburn was hanging I know Florida was hanging around a little bit and then the defense just absolutely eats the Anthony Richardson's lunch and it's a complete blowout and the game is over by halftime that game ended in seven minutes in my opinion your thoughts on this game Mullen two and seven in its last power five uh, games now He's it's getting real testy for him in Gainesville. Um, he's not the most likable coach in the world. I don't think and, you have to tell that to anyone listening. Right. So when you're not that likable, you're wildly arrogant. You don't switch up your staff and your whole goal is to out scheme teams and then you can't out scheme them. You're in trouble. And that's what he's doing there. He does not recruit very well. He's had the same guys on staff for a long time. You just saw what happens to Gary Patterson when you do that and you don't adjust your staff ever. You know, everyone's comfortable and no one gives a shit. That, that happens. They're in trouble. And I don't think they're going to let go of him necessarily because I think that's probably a little bit of an overreaction. Um, but he, that's not a very good football team and they're not exactly on an upward trajectory. Maybe he decides that he wants to change a pace if Franklin leaves for USC and maybe he wants to go up north to Penn State where he may be more comfortable. 
or like Nebraska or something. I don't know. Maybe he's tired of Florida, but they're not very good. And to Georgia, the point on Georgia, that might be the best defense since that I've seen in modern football with tempo and spread since either the 11 LSU or Bama team, because both those defenses were stupid. But this Georgia one is just suffocating. <laughs> they're they're really damn good. They they have a ceiling, and that's Stetson Bennett. Who knows what the hell is going on with JT Daniels? There's all that is one of the weirdest situations from all aspects of JT Daniels. But they're really damn good, and they probably can survive without it. But there's a lot going on there. I don't know what the hell it is. Someone I know at USC. This is not some like high ranking source or anything confidential, but I just don't want to like put anyone's name on it just because I don't know. They may not appreciate it. I talked to two people that think uh, that JT Daniels is a case of someone peaking at 17 years old. What are your thoughts on him? I can't necessarily disagree with it. Uh, I mean, when he's been in for Georgia, he's been pretty good. Right. He if he doesn't been- get hurt, none of this is a conversation. Right. There was a lot of stories out there. I know a guy at Georgia that said last year that he was healthy and that they thought that Stetson Bennett was a better quarterback for what they were doing. And that was just shocking to me that they saw him, JT, at practice. Because when he came in the last at the end of the season last year, there's no comparison between Bennett and JT. JT is much better. And now this year he's hurt again, but now he's healthy again and they're still going with Bennett. It's just a weird deal. And that's not even including the fact that this kid transferred from USC as a sophomore before the portal one-year deal and was just miraculously eligible at Georgia uh, right when he got on campus. Believe me, our whole staff was like, what the hell is this? Like, w- he went there immediately and was eligible immediately. And USC just didn't give a shit. They are like, okay, that's fine. You know, good luck. So I don't know what's going on there. They're still by far the best team in the country. But there is a ceiling, and Bennett is that ceiling. That defense is an all-timer. One, last, I want to hit one more, two more things on the Mullen aspect of it. So he got asked about the talent gap. Uh, Matt Baker of the Tampa Bay Times, who covers college football, all three schools there, uh, and he gave a classic Mullen, like, what did you think the talent gap was? And kind of got a little pissy with the reporter. Granted, I didn't end up reading the full story that was included in there. I saw the tweet thread. Uh, that's probably not a great look, but this was kind of the deal when – when to me, when Mullen got hired at Florida, I wondered one, could he recruit better because it's Florida and it kind of recruits itself like LSU and some of these other programs? And two, would it matter? Is he such a good d- talent developer that made him successful in, and a good coach, in game coach, that made him successful at Mississippi State? Did just the base level of recruiting bump you get from being at Florida and the kids you recruit, no matter how your land rate is on like, and winning recruiting battles, would that be enough to where it wouldn't matter? What are your thoughts on how he recruits? And do you think that this is ever going to change? Um, I don't think he's done a great job there recruiting. I think it's pretty evident when you see Georgia and Florida, I mean, Florida might be one of the five schools in the country where you should never have an excuse on the talent gap. That should never even be a thought process at Florida, just like it should be at Georgia or LSU or Ohio State. I mean, those are just the jobs where that should never be an issue. And they haven't really gotten there yet. He, The quarterback deal, he screwed that one up royally, having Richardson not play. I mean, yeah, he looks pretty pedestrian against Georgia, but so does everybody. But 
if he plays against LSU and against Kentucky, that all these other games, I know he was a little injured, but they probably win those games. So he's already messed up that part of it. The roster just isn't overly talented. Uh, receivers are average. You know, they looked fantastic last year, but that's just a classic example of how important players are over scheme because you have Kyle Trask, Kyle Pitts, um, and just a load of really good players. And now they're gone and you can't out scheme people because your players aren't as good. It's just a recipe for disaster. He's never been known as this dynamic recruiter and neither are a lot of the guys on his staff. So it's not a great recipe for success there. And I think they're getting a little tired of his shit, uh, his shtick, not his, his shit. Um, both could work. Yeah. Both could work. Um, Cause it would be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Cause it's not a secret that he and Strickland aren't like, pals i think they have a solid working relationship and i think that's evident in scott Strickland going to get dan mullen from state but they're definitely not chummy all the time that that's not really any secret like you don't have to cover state and kind of be around the program to know that that was pretty well known so i'm it's fascinating it's you know we talked about why not go with richardson because jones looked shaky against alabama and we were like yeah probably not a great idea for that kid's first start to go up against alabama and yet he starts him against the georgia defense i get the thing it changed the way the two quarterbacks had looked against lsu he didn't have much of a choice situations different but it's fascinating they'll probably went out they've got georgia no excuse me they've got south carolina missouri florida state and then some you know non-power five school in between uh so i think they'll probably make him change up the staff and, you know, next year there's a lot of pressure on. But, man, let him slip up against a Missouri. or so. I don't think South Carolina is even a remote option. But let him slip up against a competent offense in Missouri. That game's in Columbia. That could be the thing that, like, the death knell for him, could it not? They go 7-5 and five and have an embarrassing loss at Missouri. They could pull the trigger. That or he leaves for Penn State, and it might happen regardless. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he is, like, all this being said, he is a very good football coach. That is an undeniable fact. But – all in all, he is struggling getting this program where they should be, and that's just kind of the story of it all. Um, recruiting, evaluating, the whole deal. It's more than just being able to do X's and O's, um, and he has not necessarily succeeded in that regard there yet. Not much else to talk about, I don't think. I mean, Missouri handles Vanderbilt. State gets a huge win against Kentucky, but I just feel weird. I didn't watch a snap of it. It was the same time of the Ole Miss game. I maybe watched a lot. I probably watched, you know, five, ten minutes of it here and there in between commercials. But just your thoughts on that. Mike Leach, two years in a row where he has the team playing better in the second half of the year. Uh, I've changed my outlook on what the Egg Bowl looks like, given the state of the two programs at this point versus maybe a month ago. Just kind of your thoughts on that win. Uh, I think Kentucky pretty overrated. Yeah, Kentucky kind of regressed to their mean this year. Um, and a classic Mike Leach, you know, semi-underdog, though I think Vegas-wise they were actually a favorite in the game. Uh, but from a mindset-wise, call them the underdogs. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they finished minus one. Yeah, so that's what they do. It's just weird. And when it clicks, it can really work. Um, the problem is, is that in this league it doesn't click every game, and that's been pretty evident with Mississippi State this year. Uh, but they're definitely tough. They really do have a pretty good defense. Uh, they've got two pretty good corners, and they're solid up front, and they can be they can be very frustrating if you're not a uh, multiple offense, which at the time A&M was not, and Kentucky still is not. So it's a really good win for them. They, they are finishing strong again. That game in the Egg Bowl will be very difficult um, off a short week on the road and everything, um, which is stupid, by the way. Playing that game on Thanksgiving is so stupid. 
Um, Do anyone except people that get real wrapped up in tradition enjoy that? I didn't enjoy covering it. I don't enjoy watching it on Thanksgiving. It was so stupid because when I'm a student, like I don't want to be in Starkville or Oxford on Thanksgiving. I want to be home like with family and everything. And so no one goes to the damn game because it's on Thanksgiving unless you're in Starkville. That's the only thing you have to do. And Oxford the same way. Uh, It's so dumb. No one really watches it that much because uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Saints play the Bills on Thursday night. For That's three years in a row, is it not? Yeah. So you think people are going to be watching the Saints and the Bills or Ole Miss, Mississippi State? It's not like a national stage. It's just dumb. And, like, tradition, like, who get, who cares? Like, it's so dumb. And I think people do it kind of like point their fingers and laugh because it always ends up in some stupid brawl or some nonsense. So it's kind of become a, like a, a nice running Thanksgiving joke for a lot of people. But it's not what the schools want. No, or maybe not at least what one school wants. Who knows about them? True. Uh, um, so who, 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 I don't know. I hate that, but whatever. Um, I think that just about covers it. Anything else stand out? Penn State gave a pretty good fight. Baylor gets a win. Um, not, I mean, Mel anything, Tucker. <laughs> yeah, Mel Tucker. That's that, that, that could be a win that seals the LSU train, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, all the LSU coaches had great auditions because that's exactly what they're doing when they're trying to win these football games. All they think about <laughs> is LSU. That That's it. You know, that's the only reason they're trying to win. Clearly. Uh, yeah, you know, Billy Napier, Mel Tucker, and Dave Aranda were like, God, thank God we beat all these teams so LSU will pay me more money. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Mel Tucker's a hell of a football coach, a hell of a guy. I got to talk to him when I almost accepted a job at Colorado. and people Interesting. Freak, people freaking love that guy. Love him. Um, I am now regretting my decision. Maybe I could have been in East Lansing, um, though that doesn't sound that much fun. But he's he, people get you some snow yeah. tires. Yeah, well, it was going to be going from Boulder to East Lansing, so I really had the uh, the winter gear on. But uh, seems like a great guy. Like people love him. He looks like he could beat the shit out of any coach. <laughs> he is big. He is intimidating. Um, he has worked at LSU before, and I think I would consider him the favorite. I haven't talked to anybody. I don't know what's going to go, what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, so they did well. Besides that, not an overly exciting weekend of, of football. It is now time for the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. We are going to take a look at the English premier league. I got to tell you, I forgot. I didn't forget about soccer corner. I forgot to do the five minutes of research I do beforehand, <laughs> which means look at the standings, pick which names I recognize, which ones I don't. Uh, Brentford, uh, my bees appear to have slipped. I might have to start tweeting their Twitter account, get the, you know, light a fire under their ass a little bit. Not acceptable. Uh, take me through the week in the EPL. So I think we'll start um, with the midweek. They had the next round of the, uh, the English cup, the Carabao cup that we talked about a few weeks ago, Brentford won their game. So they are now into the quarterfinals. Nice. Uh, United was eliminated like last month. So they're not in it. So that was good for the bees. Um, on Saturday, it was basically win or go home for the, the manager of United, and they ended up beating Tottenham 3-0. So it seems like he's safe for at least another week. Um, Arsenal, the dumpster fire in the beginning of the season, has continued to play incredibly well. They're now up to sixth in the table, so good for them. That's a big, big step for them. I said they should keep on going with Arteta because they were looking pretty good and young, and that has been the case. Uh Brentford, bad, bad loss <laughs> to a really, really bad Burnley team. Um, What's so the that, deal with that? I don't even know what Burnley is. 
Yeah, exactly. It's very confusing. Very bad loss for them. Um, they're still in great shape. I think they're still going to stay up. Um, so that's good. Uh, a weird deal at the top. Uh, Man City goes a man down with a red card. They lose 2-0 to Crystal Palace at home, which very surprising. Uh, Liverpool plays Brighton, who is a good team, is up 2-0 at half, ends up tying 2-2. So they only get one point out of that game, which should have been a win. So a little reshuffling at the top. Chelsea is still number one and by far the best team um, in the league, in my opinion, even though they've got some injuries. But uh, there's definitely going to be a, a little bit more competition this year. People thought City was going to run away with it, and I don't think that's going to be the case um, at all. Any surprises? Biggest surprise so far in the season? I know we kind of do this every week. Uh, City City losing to Crystal Palace at home is by is definitely one of the biggest surprises um, team wise. But they you said they went down a couple guys red card situation. Yeah, well they they got a, one guy got a red card, so they were down to ten men in the game, and that kind of screwed them for the rest of the game. I mean, these two guys are still really good. If you go down ten men in the Premier League, you're going to lose probably. That's crazy. What if we did that in football? Should Targeting, you just play with ten. Hey. Maybe that's how you solve all the uh, all the flopping issues. You just you have to play defense with ten men for the rest of the drive if you just lay down there. There you that's, go. You fake an injury. You're out. You got to play five plays with ten men. We just saw yeah. football. No, I think that could be it. Um, but that's pretty much it with the English Premier League. Uh, this week, the Champions League is back. So Tuesday and Wednesday will be the first start of kind of the second round of group stage games. So everyone's got three games left to qualify in their groups to go on to the next round. Um, let me see who plays. Manchester United plays Atalanta, an Italian team. I'm trying to look to see if there's any like must watch games. Um, Tuesday, they're all all the games are fine. Um, Wednesday, Liverpool plays Atletico Madrid. That'll be awesome. Um, and PSG and Messi play Leipzig, who's coached by an American. So that's kind of a cool game. Uh, besides that, not that many exciting, but exciting uh, draws. But that's truly the best soccer in the world. It's it's amazing. The Champions League is the best. You just see teams all play each other that often. They go play these games on weekday games, and they're always awesome. So it's that, a lot of fun. That aspect of it is weird to me. What's like the uh, – I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this. It's like it'd be weird if Ole Miss was playing in two different leagues at one time. In terms of the focus and the buy-in, like, is it like, okay, now the cha- like the Champions League is fun, like you want to compete, obviously, but the Premier League is what matters, or is it vice versa? What's like the – what players get up more for? It's, it's kind of interesting because they've created such a really competitive dynamic that the Champions League is probably the most prestigious trophy. It is the Super Bowl of European soccer but it doesn't necessarily take that much precedence over winning your own league. So they're, they're, they're all in on both. And to be able to do that, I think soccer is just a sport, just with the dynamic of the sport, the way it's played, you can play more games, but they've built in these interseason tournaments um, that have really have a lot of meaning to all the players. So they don't really play down. You might have to rest a few guys, especially in the group stages because you're playing so many games in your own league on the weekends, then coming back and playing the weekday games um, that are biweekly, um, at least at this point in the tournament. So you might not have your full lineup out there for some of the Champions League games early, but once it gets late later and you're in the quarterfinals and it's like the aggregate scoring, you play at home and road, 
you're playing your best guys because the Champions League final is the biggest final in sports, basically, except for the World Cup. Do they have it at the same time? Like, could you have a team in the Premier League in the Champions League final and they just play like two Super Bowls in a week? So, actually, it's where you say that. Last year in the FA Cup final, it was Manchester City versus Leicester City. And a week later, maybe even just a few days later, I think it was like more like a week, Manchester City had to play Chelsea in the Champions League final. And those are two massive tournaments. So you really uh, have to kind of wager the risk of playing your guys in which one, because the FA Cup, that's like the oldest tournament in England and the Champions League is obviously the Super Bowl. So they kind of had to deal with that issue um, last year. And it kind of creates a, a funky dynamic uh, between the teams and the players. Yeah, no kidding. And like the, no, to add another wrinkle to it, the Champions League that you mentioned the final, that's two Premier League teams, right? Playing in the Champions League final? Yeah. And that, I don't, that does not happen very often. I mean, it, it's all of Europe. So you don't see it's happened before. I mean, Dortmund has played Bayern Munich, two German teams. Uh, there's been Atletico Madrid's played Real Madrid in the final, two Spanish teams. So it's not uncalled for, but it does not happen very often. What's the deal with this Lee's Chester thing? I, I don't want to take too too much of your time, but like, what's the I, so when they won the Premier League, their odds were something. You know, it was one of the all time upsets in terms of Vegas odds and statistical probability. Like so much so, like ESPN sent Wright Thompson to wherever Lee's Chester is. Is that a city? I don't know. Uh, to <laughs> to to like the the place wherever that is to write a story on it. Are they? Is this an owner situation? How are they continue to be good? I figured this would never happen again. They. Were, they won the league by having just the best developmental team. They had a great coach who was experienced, and they were just a just so good at home. They like just did not lose games at home, and they just held serve on the road. And after they won it, I mean, the big boy teams went and bought all their best players. <laughs> I mean, Mares went, went to City, and Conte went to Chelsea, and Harry Maguire's at United, and so on and so forth. But some of the guys bought in and stayed. They got big paydays and were like, all right, we can keep doing this. And they've continued to just really do a great job of their farm system. Their well, not really farm system, just their evaluations of players they've bought on cheap, you know, buy low, sell high for a lot of these teams. Um, they've got real investment now. Uh, their owner, I think they might have a new owner. Their, their King Power is their uh, sponsor and they built all these new facilities. So they're, uh, they're here to stay in terms of like the top five, 10 teams in the league. And they've done it probably in a way that no other sport can do it with just no real salary cap. When you win and win big and you get the money and you make the financial commitments and you evaluate players and buy the right ones, you can be a powerhouse and they are not necessarily that, but they're damn good. Love that. Last thing I have to point it out, uh, it's going to put a really, really big damper on this Saudi storyline. Newcastle firmly in relegation position. I know it's early. Actually, I don't know it's early. It's still early, right? It's still pretty early. Okay, yeah. so you, you don't see that changing, but that, that could suck. I don't want the Saudi guy who's worth more money than everyone but like Bezos, maybe more than Bezos, in some tier two league that we're not going to talk about in soccer corner next year. This can't yeah. happen. Well, I think what you'll see is there's the two transfer windows and one comes up in January during the midseason. And my guess is they throw out some stupid money. Yes, I love it. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I, I love be, to hear yeah. that. 
it's like the trade trade deadline. It's like, you know, a few weeks of the of the transfer window. And I think that'll be one of the funniest sports storylines to follow is how many above average to average players are the Saudis going to throw like $50 million at 50 million euros at. So that'll be something to follow. That'll be fun. They'll probably remake the whole team and figure it all out from there because right now they're, yeah, they're very bad. Love to hear that. I, I'm, that, I'm not worried anymore. I thought I might've been onto something. Uh, if <laughs> no there's worries. a soccer corner first take, I might've been like, you know, is it overrated to have a billion, $300 billion owner, but now I can't uh, 50 nice. million roughly what you make on this podcast. I appreciate every minute of it. Uh, we will be back next week. Maybe do some preview stuff. We're probably not going to preview Liberty per se, but I've got some ideas in the works uh, that I might uh, want to run by before Sunday. But if nothing else, you'll be back next Sunday. I appreciate the time, dude. Of course. Absolutely. See you next time. Uh, that'll do it for our show. Uh, everyone have a safe and happy start to their week, and we will catch you well tonight on next Sunday. We'll have a Wednesday podcast out, so have a great start to the week.